G'day, I'm Dave Cheney, and crikey, it's go time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. We are back for another episode of Go Time. Today on the show, we have myself, Eric St. Martin. Brian Kettleson is also on the show today. Hello. And Carlicia Campos. Hi, everybody. And our special guest today, although he needs very little introduction, is Dave Cheney. Say hello, Dave. Why don't you give everybody kind of a brief introduction? Hello there. Hi. Uh, my name's David. I am a Go enthusiast from Sydney, Australia. I've been involved uh, in Go for many, many years. And I just love, love the opportunity to be involved with the language and get involved so early to be involved in something I'm so passionate about. So hello, everyone. Now, it's kind of amusing having you introduce yourself. Uh, one of the things that we found at GopherCon just a month or so ago was that nearly everyone that we talked to learned Go from your blog. They're, they're, out of the 1,500 people that were there, uh, 1,499 of them listed your blog as one of the resources they used to use Go. So it is kind of embarrassing to introduce you, but we feel it's necessary. Yeah, it was, it was great to meet so many people at, at GopherCon, and it was really touching the way that you know everyone was like, "Oh, I love, I love to read your blog." It was, yeah, re- re- really touching because five years ago, I never started out to be an author or a, a blogger or a public speaker. It was just you know the way that, like every good engineer, you think, "Oh, I've answered this problem so many times. I can solve this by just writing it down once, and then I can give people the URL." And that's that's kind of how I got started. So, uh, a question on that did. Go encourage you to find your voice, or did just becoming a better engineer encourage you to find that voice? I don't. That's it's kind of a question: is the tail tail wag the dog, or does the dog wag the tail? Certainly. So I joined Canonical. Uh, would have been would have been about five years ago, about uh, yeah, four or five years ago, and we were encouraged to communicate on IRC all the time, and so it was a great opportunity to moonlight in the um, IRC in the the IRC channel for, um, for Go. Um, and yeah, I, I, at the time, like this was just Go 1.1.0 was just barely out and there were so many questions people have and they, they would kind of come into the channel all the time and ask the same question. And so I would, um, you know, as, as I said, try to solve this problem by just writing it down and I could give people URLs. And then um, around the same time, so Go had supported ARM and I, I knew this and I found a really cheap arm box in Australia. And, and one of the magical things about Australia is that um, we don't have access to Raspberry Pis and, and things like that. Things It's always hard to get to get equipment. And so when I found this, I was like, can I install Go on it? And I, and I could, and that became the very first um, builder. And I was so excited about it, I wanted to like tell people about, hey, you can run Go on this, on this kind of hacked up NAS. Um, and that was, I think that was one of the first things I, I wrote on my blog. Um, and yeah, then it just went from there. In addition to all the blog writing, you've also contributed quite a bit to Go. Yeah. So as I said in, in my introduction, it was kind of like this opportunity to get involved at the ground floor. Um, like all you needed, all you needed to be involved was spare time, and uh, it's it's just snow, snowballed since then. Um, you know, and that kind of 
you know, see a need, fill a need kind of, kind of thing. For years, you hosted the uh, uh, unofficial builds for the ARM uh, platforms on your website. And I think it was, it was not, not too far in the past when Go started making the build dashboard and, and actually having builders that were hosted in-house. But uh, I think for the longest time, all of us that used ARM boards with Go were downloading Go directly from you, which was awesome. And, and we all appreciate it. Our, our Raspberry Pis definitely are thankful for that. Yeah. So like, um, like I really think ARM is, is really special. Like um, I, I know Intel r- rules most of the server world, but like ARM has a really special place. It's so simple. It's such a um, you know, beautifully clean operating um, instruction set rather than, you know, the, the Intel mess. And so like, I just like, I appreciate go for being simple and minimal. I really appreciated ARM for being all the, all the same things. Um, the, the, the story for how to uh, build and uh, build build an ARM distribution, and mainly a lot of the, the 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 magic about ARM machines is they're usually pretty pretty weak, especially the ARM five ones. So a lot of people didn't have the opportunity to build Go. Um, Cross compiling used to be quite difficult, as as we all know. So that was just something I could do. I reached out to Andrew and said, you know, if, as long as I put a big warning, not official, unsupported label at the top, are you happy for me to maintain those? Uh, maintain those builds and he was he was happy to but in the last year we've managed to get real builders using places like Scaleway um, I think Scaleway hosts all the Intel builders so now we have real builders on the dashboard which means that the Go project can produce a real tarball for everyone to use which is exa- exactly exactly what I wanted it's graduated from being a, uh, from, from being a side project to being something that's fully supported by the Go team now no, I think the blog post I'm waiting for the most is the how does Dave Cheney make more time in a day? Because <laughs> it's like you have a day job, you contribute to Go, you contribute to um, proposals for language changes. Uh, recently, you've been traveling a lot, doing talks at a lot of Go conferences. And just, yeah, how you make time for that is just astonishing. Yeah, it's, 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 a, pretty, it's a pretty full schedule. Um, the, the magic of Australia is that it's, you know, it's it's a day or two in a plane anywhere, and any, anywhere you want to go. I don't know. I've I've always, I've always been very very lucky. Like Can- Canonical, extremely supportive of me uh, w- w- working on Go, and they even sponsored uh, some of the time they sponsored me. Like they sponsored Aram and I to work on the first cut of the ARM sixty four port. Um, so that was that was that was great. That my day job could become the thing that I love. Um, and yeah, you you just find. Uh, Find time and find time in the weekends and after work and just integrate it into into your life. Um, I, I'm I'm really lucky that that I've been able to do that. Well, on behalf of all of the people uh, across the world, we all really appreciate the effort that you put into um, proselytizing Go and, and teaching everybody and and building community. We we I don't think the Go community would be the way it is now without you. So thank you. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I have to add my my name to the list of people who who learned a ton from Dave's blog, especially in the early days. Uh, I mean, because when Brian and I were starting out in late 2011, early 2012, I mean, there wasn't a lot of content out there. I, I, I feel really, really lucky and privileged to be able to do that because it wasn't like it, it was a space that I could fill up with words. Um, like there was you know, some, some great, great things to say about Go. I was learning a lot about it. I wanted to, t- to tell other people about it. And there, there was, there was just, just an opportunity. It was, 
like if you'd have met me, as I said, five years ago, or you know, ten, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have picked me for any of these things that I don't know whether I've had to learn them or whether I've been um, lucky to learn to be to be a public speaker. Like I haven't done any public speaking since high school. Like I, I thought when I graduated, I can just throw away that bit of my brain. Like I'm never going to be, do public speaking or debating anymore. But had to learn learn how to learn how to do that um, again. Um, a writer. <laughs> my father is very is very impressed by that. Um, he he was like, oh, I never, I, I, I never. Uh, your writing has improved so much because yeah, like as as an engineer leaving leaving high school, I didn't think, oh, what what. Uh, non-fiction writing who needs that i just need code <laughs> well i think we've spent uh, 14 minutes now on dave cheney fanboyism so <laughs> why don't we why don't we slow down on the ass kissing session for just a minute and talk about some of the really cool things that you've done lately um you gave a great talk at golang uk last week about solid design why don't you tell us a little bit about that the, the meat of that talk the solid design principles came out of a presentation i did a couple of a couple of months ago uh, in Perth to Dave Thomas's Yao uh, group group of conferences, and that 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 talk was uh, to to a group of people who didn't really know Go. Like it was a mixed uh, a mixed bag of technologists, most of whom were very passionate about functional programming. Um, and so I had an opportunity to take this talk and kind of redo it for a home team a home team crowd, and I wanted to put it inside a to to, to make it interesting for the audience. Say, well, why should you care about these things? They're not just being presented in abstract, I want to wrap it in a bigger request for, for what I see from Go, that if Go is going to be a language which companies invest in, you know, they, they, build, they build products in and they in, use them in their infrastructure, they're going to invest in them for 10, 15, 20 years, then my, my bigger message was that Go programmers need to start thinking about how programs are designed, like, uh, 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 because the alternative is that we'll just become the JavaScript framework of the month. and possibly replaced by something else. But if we think about design um, and talk, and more importantly, talk about design, develop a language to talk about the design of programs rather than just moving from the next fastest HTTP router to the next one, then, <laughs> then, then, then Go has a, has a chance uh, to, to, be, to be a language that um, people, you know, people want to use the programs that are written in 10, 15 years. So Dave's definitely listened to the show because Brian rants about the number of HTTP routers about every episode. <laughs> the other talk I gave oh. at, at Golang UK was about how to write fast Go code. So I might be a little bit hypocritical in, in dumping on people who are writing HTTP routers. But the, the, bigger, the bigger picture is that the Go code that we write today has to be maintainable, has to be changeable. It can't, it can't just be something which solves today's need. It has to be... Uh, we, we, it needs to be maintainable for the for the long term because otherwise, maybe maybe in five years people are like, oh, this go code, it's not maintainable. What are we going to do? And they'll rewrite it in something else, and then continue that continue that that kind of search for the search search for the next thing. Like to be to be a, a, a an investment that the company is going to make for a decade or more. The the, the maintenance of the program is far more important than the initial just just sticking the prototype together and seeing how fast it goes. And there is another aspect of thinking about design. For me, it, it, it does take effort. It does take an effort in uh, you learning what good design means. But once you start learning it, 
it makes coding easier. For example, when I started writing Go, I would think, where do I put things? And I see people asking that all over the place. Where do I put things? Where do I put my models? Where do I put this? Where do I put that? Well, if you take some time and think about how to design your interfaces, how to design your packages, how to organize everything, and if, if you start thinking about dependencies, those questions, that question gets answered automatically, and you end up with good code. So there are multiple layers and multiple reason, uh, reasons for you to think about design, I think. That, that's exactly right. And you touched on a really important thing that you just said, good code there, but that's that's kind of super subjective. What is good code? Well, I like it to look a certain way. I like to have long identifiers. I like to call my receiver this rather than rather than you know the single letter that we're we're used to because that's how I used to do it. And what what I was interested in talking about um, in in the UK is what what if we had a different language to talk about design that was not so subjective? Like I like this, and I like I prefer it to be a, a certain way. That was more that was more objective, and that's some some of the ideas that that Martin Solar principles talk about. They're not they're, they're they're less they're less not no less opinionated, but they come from a point of saying, I I like this because it is uh, it is easy to modify. I don't like this because there's a lot of coupling with the other types and other packages. We can say we can say it more objectively, and uh, we, when you the the thing Martin says about the solid principles is that they're not they're not rules. They're just, they're, they're guidelines. Like you can, you can say every now and then, look, you know, I, I want to be, you know, I, I should be honest in all my dealings. I should be truthful to my friends, but sometimes you have to bend the rules, tell a little white lie, those, those kind of things. And when you talk about, when you talk about design principles, you can say things like, I don't, I don't like this because it's quite tightly coupled, but this seems like a reasonable trade-off to achieve our objective. And, and, it's interesting to talk about design using those kind of words rather than rather than things like I, I don't like that that code should be more beautiful beautiful or I don't like it it should be shorter these are um, not really actionable for uh, to, to have have in a wider design context like because everyone's idea of well how short is short how beautiful is is beautiful becomes just subjective in the subject of arguments right some of those things that people point out are more from an aesthetic standpoint right and it's like art uh what i appreciate is going to always be different from what you appreciate but i think we can both agree that two highly coupled components are hard to maintain right we can collectively agree that on that so yeah i, I think talking about this at this uh, objective level makes a lot of sense and it's one of the reasons why i loved ruby a lot when i came into the ruby world a few years ago was because these were the conversations people were having all the time or about uh, the law of Demeter and and coupling and cohesion and things like that, and I really appreciated that people were talking about making clean abstractions and maintainable code. So I like the idea that we're starting to talk about that in the Go world as well. Yeah, absolutely, and and, and I think it it's critical because companies, if companies are going to invest in the long term, and they they have started, like you know, have Docker, all the Core OS products, all the HashiCorp products, Kubernetes. There's an investment, but to make to make that investment pay off in the future, it can't just be just smashing out code as fast as possible. There has to be some fun, some fundamental design so we can change the code in the future as the requirements change. So my question is, if there's a maturity model for 
go as we evolve into a, a more popular language and a, a more uh, well adopted language does that mean we have to go through some ugly growth phases like gang of four patterns and enterprise java beans or what what does our maturity model look like and go does anybody else want to jump in while i think sure i i think that gang of four is probably a, a little too far right I, I don't think we want to get into that because the language is specifically kind of designed to prevent that right like uh, this whole inheritance chain and things like that. So, but I think that there are some lessons to be learned, right? Like most of those abstractions were built for, for good reasons, you know, um, abstracting away, creating clean interfaces and things like that. And I think that we can do that without having to have that many patterns, like kind of, kind of to Dave's point, like there, there should be kind of objective goals that we're trying to achieve and not necessarily uh, set in stone patterns, I guess would be my, my take on that. So I, I did have a section in the talk, which, which I cut and because I, I didn't have enough time, but mainly because I had a lot of pushback on it. So I, I start the talk by saying, you know, who does, who does code review? You know, why do you do code review? Someone yelled out to define, define bad code. And, um, and that, that's, that's really the, the, the hook there. Um, and I, I kind of opened the question like, so the patterns book, does that tell you how to write good code, and my, my assertion was, perhaps not. Perhaps in, in the in the bigger context, they they're called patterns because you apply them, like like a sewing pattern or like like a like a recipe. When you have a particular problem, you you, you could use a set a set of those, um, a set of those solutions if they fit. But I think talking about design and principles, to take Martin's word, are kind of higher level high level notions of. What is the goal, not what is the problem I'm, sol I'm solving right now? And if the goal um, is to make the code maintainable, and by maintainable I mean changeable in the future, a, a, th a thing like a, a visitor pattern or an iterator pattern isn't going to give you the vocabulary to talk about that. It's, you know, that, that's just a point solution. Yeah, I, th I think it also limits the possibilities, right? Like if, if we always refer to you need to use one of these patterns, I think that it also kind of closes off creativity but i think that we can generically talk about things like these two components should not be coupled together and uh i always mix up the two books there's another there's another book uh called clean code by by bob martin as well um and then there's uh pragmatic programmer from journeyman the master both of those books i really like and they, they have a lot of kind of unique ideas in there where, where they kind of show you like if one if one type seems to know too much about another type, maybe you have the function in the wrong place and things like that. And we can talk about these at a very, very high level without having to, like you said, go into like, oh, well, this is a visitor pattern or this is a decorator pattern or flywheel or any of the other ones in the Gang of Four book. Like, it's actually kind of interesting. I haven't had to think about the Gang of Four book in a number of years since leaving Java. <laughs> and 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 that's a good thing too because I, I distinctly remember a piece of middleware that i swore somebody went through the book and found a use for every single pattern in the book <laughs> so here's the weird thing about the patterns book um when it was i guess it was written in the the mid, mid, mid to late 80s probably in the 90s at the time people and i'm kind of gesticulating to the luminaries who write patterns books thought that it would be it's it would just be the first of many books they thought that would be patterns in in everything and, you know, the, every year there would be, you know, patterns 2005, 2006, like just an endless supply of them. 
But it actually turned out that the 30-odd of them that are in that book are pretty much all there are. And it's not because um, DeMarco and his friends sat, I think um, Gamma and sat down and like thought up 30 patterns and then were like, okay, we've got to do a second edition of the book. They observed them in code that they were looking at. They kind of, they kind of got it back to front. They, were, they looked at this wide body of code and tried to find commonalities. And from, from there, they extrapolated the patterns book. But they, they could never find more patterns because they're just a, they're a finite number of them. They're like, kind of like a law of nature. You can't invent new, new laws of nature. They're just there. And so, so that, that really kind of, all of a sudden, instead of the patterns book being the start of a, you know, a way that we're going to describe every, you know, every piece of software design, it just kind of became this one point in time of um, these, these couple of dozen kind of observations about software at that time, you know, written in the 80s. And one of the things about my, um, my talk, and I was very inspired to do it, um, I, I run Glen London because Jim Wyrick's talk from 2007 starts with um, talking about the Great Fire of London and saying, you know, then, then when they were going to uh, rebuild London, they had all these proposals for how to rebuild London. And his question like, that he opened his talk with was, well, looking at all these different plans for how to rebuild London, how do you decide what's a good one? How do you decide, like, we're all not architects in this room. How do you decide which one you like? Like, we, we, what is the right design to rebuild London? And, and, and again, without language to describe what is good architectural design any more than what is good software design. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we could say the same about algorithms too, right? There's a, there's a lot of clearly defined algorithms that have really good use cases. And we reach for that bag of well-defined algorithms based on need, but sometimes you know, based on things we know about how things scale and their performance and how clean they are, we also are free to make our own choices, right? Yeah, to, to talk about algorithms, what is the meta language that we talk about algorithms? The, the big O notation, what is the time complexity versus the space complexity? And it, it, it's like a, a, a linked list has better space complexity, but, but poor time complexity. Um, and also in, in in your in current hardware, it has um, even poorer time complexity versus versus just a vector. So the the meta language to talk about algorithms uh, are these these concepts of time complexity and space complexity, and it's space versus time time trade off. And I mean, the unfortunately, that's a lot more measurable than you know the, this uh, these concepts we're talking about now with you know how coupled is something right? Like that's hard to measure. Yep. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's still probably an argument that you could compare like a, like a, a hash map to just an array, array of items. For really big hash maps and really big arrays of items, the, the lookup time is order log n versus order, order n. Um, but for really small ones, that n is really small. So does it matter? Like right. you, you can't, the, the, these are the, the kind of subtleties of, you know, if, if you were saying, well, we always have to use a hash map because hash maps have faster lookups. Is, is ignoring the fact of, you know, it's a HTTP header map. It's maybe only gonna, ever going to have five things in it. What's, what's the overhead of setting up that hash map, hashing all the items versus just doing a straight linear, linear search through like, you know, HTTP headers only have like five or six items in them usually. So th- those, those are the kind of design, design decisions, I guess, you can talk about uh, with uh, space and time, uh, the, the you know, big O notation. But so that, that was, that was the, the thing that I wanted to get people um, in the Go community, talking about talk about design at a high level rather than rather than just posting on Reddit. Hey, I need a what's what's the fastest? What's the fastest or the best? Like talk about subjective 
concerns. What's the fastest web framework? What's the best? Um, what's what's the best HTTP router? These are. I, I wanted to see people start to talk at a higher level and say, uh, start start thinking about what what is what is the best way to design my application to make it maintainable in the future, make make it maintainable and reusable, composable in the future. Yeah, and I'd love to see more conversations along these lines too, because I mean I've been developing Go for a number of years, and I still struggle with um, kind of package layout. Like, at what point do I split things up into separate packages? When do I kind of make sub packages? Um, you know how we kind of have like IO and then IO util and things like that. And I'm still, I'm still trying to abstract these patterns from common code bases that I see and come up with my own rules of thumb. So having more conversations like this, you know, more people talking about it, I think is a really good thing because I think a lot of people can learn from this. Yeah, the standard library is. Kind of a double a double edged sword. Like for like for authors like yourself or I- any anybody who wants to kind of give some advice that won't change next week, the standard library is really good because the Go One guarantee means that you know it's it's going to be the same for you know five or ten years. We can you know we can give this advice and no no it won't be out of date soon. But the thing about the Go library is it it what's some of the most well reviewed Go code in in the world and it's written by the, the best Go programmers at the time. It's also some of the oldest Go code, um, and has some inconsistencies. Like you can look at it and pretty much prove whatever side of the argument you want to you want to make. You'll always find an example in there that supports your whatever argument you want to make. Um, which 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 is tricky because what is one of the what one of the three things that we tell we tell new Go programmers? Go do the tour, go read the language spec, go read the standard library. Um, and it's not it's not as clear a guidance as I think we'd like. Well, some of the problem with the standard library is that uh, pieces of that code were written before we knew what good Go code design looked like. You, it, it evolved with design, and, and we didn't take the time, we as, as the Go community didn't take the time to go back and change those things in the standard library for various reasons. And so it is, I agree, it's, it's interesting to see some of the variances in style, especially in the standard lab, based on the age of the code. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and how you talk about kind of things changing um, and evolving, it, it was based on what we knew at the time. Um, I mean, one of those things that you've been uh, also kind of uh, doing talks about and advocating is error handling. And I think before we kind of shift over into that, we should probably break really quick uh, to do kind of a shout out to our sponsors and then we'll kind of come over and start talking into your error changes. Okay, cool. So I'm excited to talk about our new sponsor, Backtrace. Uh, Backtrace sponsored our live streaming at GopherCon. So if you were one of the over 10,000 people who tuned in to watch GopherCon on Twitch, you've got Backtrace to thank for it. Software teams are using Backtrace to take the headache and guesswork out of debugging across their frameworks. When your application fails, Backtrace jumps into action, capturing detailed application state, including the complete set of Go routines that are running, the channels and the wait durations on those channels, and lots of good scheduler information too. They analyze all that state and archive it for you so that you can go back and explore the interesting patterns across your errors and try to figure out uh, better ways to make your application work. A lot of big companies are using Backtrace, like Fastly, Limelight Networks, message system and app nexus so you can check out their website and blog including details on their premium go support 
and go to backtrace.io slash go time to start a free trial or request a demo. Yay, Backtrace. Awesome. So we were just kind of talking about the standard library and evolving it um, based on new knowledge gained from, you know, years of writing code in what is the 1.0 spec. And uh, some of the stuff that we're starting to see and one of the, the topics you're, you're primarily advocating is the way error handling is done. And it seemed like some of the Sentinel error values and kind of just returning up the error seemed to be good enough um, as the language was evolving. But uh, I'd like to talk a bit more about kind of your, your new approach. And you did a talk at uh, GopherCon about it. And you've got a, your own package to be used to, to help with error handling. I'd like to talk a bit about that. Sure. First of all, before I say anything, I need to be very clear that I stand stand a, a very small amount above the shoulders of, of many giants who've done a lot of work bef before that. The, the errors package that I wrote is directly influenced by the one that we wrote at Canonical for Juju, which is based on Roger Pepe's work from earlier. Like There, there is a long lineage of this idea evolving, which is kind of something that I see, um, I also see in, in, other, um, in, in other areas in Go, and not to get too, too distracted. For example, uh, two, two, two and a bit years ago, Rob Polk wrote about functional options. Um, I, thought, I thought this was such an amazing pattern that I went and talked about it at .go, mainly because I didn't think people uh, gave, gave Rob's um, post enough credit. Like I thought it was a, a brilliant idea and it just kind of flew under the radar. Um, I talked about it. I got on stage and talked about it at .go. The idea keeps percolating and the latest evolution of it is in, we, 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 see, we see it in gRPC. They use that heavily in the constructors for all the gRPC types and it's just the, the formalization around the naming of options and the way they're going to they're call it. So that, what, what I see in the broader broader perspective there is kind of an evolution of these ideas which is which is how it should be so to, to talk about errors is is two kind of two stories that, that sit side by side the first story is that i've written a lot of blog posts about how i think error handling should be done and this is separate from uh from stack traces and things like that in fact embarrassingly i actually wrote the same blog post twice about an hour about a month a, a, month, a month in between <laughs> people I even gave it the same title um and when it when it showed up on reddit people thought that uh people thought it was a cross post but um the big picture there is that i'm trying to push very heavily this idea that if there's an error return from your from your function in general and there are always there are always exceptions because because especially when you're, when you're dealing with the network and retriable things but in in, in general you should try to basically say, this error happened. I don't know anything about anything about the details. I just need to go through my cleanup behavior and then give the error back to the caller. Um, it, it makes it, it makes the code and the design so much simpler and so much more so much uh, more decoupled to just say an error happened. I'm going to clean up whatever I was doing in this function. And that can actually, and most times that's for almost nothing because we have nice small functions that are well well factored and then just give the error back to the caller. I don't know what happened. I'm just cleaning up. I'm going to give the error back to the caller. And so that's, um, I've talked about ideas of r rather than checking the error matches a particular value like or the error, um, the error is a particular type, you, sh you should instead try and think about it as, okay, if I need to know something about this error, does it 
is it a temporary error? We'll, we'll assert, does it, have a temp, does it fit the temporary interface, which you get from net.con or you can define, define yourself? And that, that leads to much, uh, much loosely coupled way of error handling. I don't know anything about whether this error happened. I don't know whether it happened in my direct caller or whether it happened 100 stack frames down. Something happened. I'm going to clean up and, and hand the error back to the, back to the top. So that's kind of, that's kind of like, like a, a, a way for de- 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 designing, de- designing Go programs that just de- deal with errors in that kind of fail, fail fast kind of way. You don't, at every stage, you're not trying to, oh, something, something went wrong. I'm going to look at that error and see if it matches a dozen of the a dozen of the kinds that I know about, and then in those particular cases, I'm going to retry or I'm going to adjust some timer and then do it again. No, just just blow up, just blow up, give it back to the the person above you. Maybe they know how to do it. Um, just keep just hand the error back. Fail fail early, fail fast, because we know that's the way to write reliable software. You know that that this idea of crash crash only software. If an error happens, just quit. Something will restart you. Try again. So that's kind of that's kind of one part. In the in the case of the the is temporary check, um, I know in your talk you you kind of brought that up. But do you advocate that if it's temporary, people do some kind of exponential back off with some back pressure to to eventually fail out, or do you do you, are you kind of advocating just always return and pass up the chain and and handle it at the the highest level possible? It's 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 always it's always a trade off. I think. In the places where you where your code does actually know it's dealing with the network, so th- this this is to come back to the idea of of you, you want to have modular design, and if the the way that your modules interact with each other are interfaces rather than concrete types, in the case that your code does know it's dealing with the network, like you're you're actually writing a HTTP server, or you're um, or you, you're writing the SSH package, or something like that, something that will most of the time actually work over the network. You have you have the simplest knowledge that when when a, a particular caller operation does fail, it could be because DNS just DNS just flaked out or the network just flapped or something like that. Oftentimes, when you are when you're working in this thing, you're passed by another package is just a, a read write a read write closer. You don't know where that came from. It could be a buffer, it could be a file on disk, could be anything. So it 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 really depends on what what is what is the goal of the goal of your package and to take that responsibility and just wrap. And, and just wrap up. So you can imagine that the the HTTP package knows a lot about the network. It knows it that there's even things that, that um, we're trying to do in 1.8 to retry HTTP errors if HTTP operations if we think that they are safe to do so. Um, like it's a GET request. It didn't have a body. There there was a temporary error trying to make the connection. Maybe in that circumstance you can you, you can retry. But the, the, all, all those kind of caveats mean that you know a lot about the environment that that package is operating in. I think in general, you don't uh, you, you don't know you don't have that kind of um, that, that the kind of visibility to how your package is working. And many times, perhaps you shouldn't. Perhaps you should try and treat them more like black boxes because that makes them easier to just clip together. There are less uh, implicit agreements between between code. They have to be they they have to be explicit or just they're just opaque. I guess that makes sense because even if you think about it from the network concept. I mean, what are you doing, right? Some temporary error may have occurred, but you can't guarantee item potence, right? So you could retry, but that may cause some uh, undesired effect on the other side because it half completed or something like that. So yeah, I guess I can kind of see how 
retrying is always hard. You really have to understand what the system is doing and potentially check state and make sure that something didn't get half committed before retrying. Exactly, exactly. So in, in those situations, it shouldn't be so easy to just blithely just put it in a, in a retry loop. Like you perhaps want to think about how how the, how this operation failed. And that, that means that you need to know then very intimately about all the all the parts of the code down downstream for you, which means a lot more coupling. You have a lot more um, you have a lot more knowledge of the the components that you're building on top of. Um, that, and that that's certainly there are, there are cases to do that. I think I think they're less um, they're less widespread than people think. Um, and, and in general, you want to try and compose your programs out of um, out, out of smaller pieces. Like to give an example. The, the SSH package, which is obviously built on top of networking and SSH and public keys and uh, 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 SSH agents, the the interfaces that those types implement are just your usual read write closer. Um, we, we we worked really hard to make the uh, con interface uh, and the session interface look pretty much like um, like like a read write closer or a similar thing that you get from OS exec. Um, pe- pe- people don't exec. Uh, people don't expect. Uh, OS exec failures to be retriable, so we don't really expose those those either. So that that that's all from the point of view of uh, build, building building packages that you know inter- interoperate at a very very high level. They they don't know a lot about each other apart from the interfaces. There's a a separate part of error handling, which is when error does happen. How do you tell the developer or the operations person or that? I, I, what I was saying earlier, you just kind of wave your hands and say, "I'm just going to give the error back to the person above me, the code, the code above me. It'll figure out what to do." Eventually, eventually, you're going to reach the top of your function or the main handler of your web web server or whatever it is, and some, and the you know that cost is going to come due. You're going to have to figure out what happened, and in that case, you want to get as much information about the error that happened. You want to encode as much information as you can. Um, preferably, you want to get a stack trace or something to point you to. Where, where the error where the error actually occurred, um, because you know, as a developer, I'm going to get a bug report, and if it just says failed to do request, IOEOF, where did that come from? Where 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 did that come from? So that the second part of error handling is using the using the fact that error the error is a is a value, and and we've just talked about from the caller's point of view, just making it opaque, just making it just a, an error happened. You don't know anything more than that. Then we can use this fact, and we can stick extra information into it. We can, um, for for a long t- for a long time, the the tradition has been use form formed error formed error f, put some little prefix, and then print out the error, and then kind of annotate the error all the way up, so you get this kind of string that's growing with a, a little bit on the front every time. Um, that that's been that's been a pattern we've seen in the standard library a lot. Um, Donovan and Kernigan talk about it in their book. Um, there's a lot if you a lot of Go code written out there. You know, if error not equal nil, return formed error f. Some some description that says what happened, and then the the text of the error. And that, that's good because at the top you get at least the kind of Roger used to call them breadcrumbs of this failed because this failed column because this failed column because this failed, and you can kind of grep for those little individual strings and kind of manually construct a stack trace of how where you were in that code and that that that's good but it has problems that uh there are cases 
um, as 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 few as they are and as as, as many as I, as I would prefer that weren't. In the standard library, we do actually want to check um, want to check for a specific value. IOEF is the, um, the the super example of this. Any reader, any IO reader, must return IOEF. It can't return you know read failed colon IOEF. It must return exactly that value of IO.EOF. We're actually checking for equality there. So, in certain cases, you can't do this annotation because uh, to take taking IOEF, printing its string out, pending it to another string, and then returning a, an entirely different value from FUNCT RF gives you something which doesn't compare, and you can't strip off that prefix anymore because you've forever damaged it. So if we're talking about using the error value to annotate like extra information, some kind of message or a stack trace or something like that, it has to be undoable. And, and, and again, this is, this is um, not uh, – this, this, this might – my work in this area is, is is very small. It's certainly not unique. There's a lot of work that that I I, I stand on, um, which we, this idea of okay, so if we have an error, let's give it a method. Um, let's give it a method that lets you get uh, the underlying error. So if we're stacking them one on top of another, let's have a method that we can do undo this stacking, so that if we do need this behavior of saying, um, is this IOEF? Or for example, um, if you use OS is not exist that knows about a certain bunch of types from syscall, uh, from Windows. Uh, there's, a, there's a few other ones that it knows specifically to check and says, I know how to interpret these error types and I know how to look at them and say, is this actually caused by a file not found? So you need to be able to, whatever wrapping you do to add context, add a stack, a stack frame, add a message, you need to be able to undo that because there are cases where you, you, you need to extract the error value because that's the way the code goes. Right. And I mean, there's cases where we've seen where people have masked the Sentinel error values based on the type that they're returning in their error, too. So relying on those kind of Sentinel error values and stuff becomes problematic. But so the nice thing I like about this approach, too, is the other pattern we've seen people trying to solve these same problems with is tagged logging, right? But that only helps in the log messages that are going out. That doesn't help the callers that the messages are being passed back up the stack to. Oh, this this comes into my other my other big big rant, which is only handle the error once. And handle means basically I've inspect I've inspected the error value. If error not equal to nil, that's your inspection. I've looked at it, and then you get to make exactly one decision. And that decision could be to log the message. That you've handled it, like you've written it out, and so therefore the error is handled. You don't need to return it to the caller. Now, um, what were some cases you, you might you might log it? Say you're like searching in a search path. You're looking for a particular file, and it's not in your home directory. It's not in the shared directory. Is it in the system one? So you, you're not you're not going to bail out on that first that first time around because you know if it's not in your home directory. You're going to look in the shared location, then you're going to look in the system location. So you check the error. And you, you might either say, okay, it wasn't found there, but I have two more search paths to look. So there is handled that point. Um, what, what I see a lot is uh, at every level in the call stack, if error not equal to nil, I'm write out, log, some error happened, and then return that error to the caller. So that means, you know, however, however much you've applied this pattern all the way in your code, you're going to get 10 or 15 different log messages basically telling you the same thing. Error happened. Error happened, failed. Error happened, couldn't open file. Error happened, couldn't couldn't parse JSON. 
And then right at the right at the top of your handler or your main function, you're just going to get the raw error with no stack trace and no context. And logging and logging kind of happens externally. Like it's written out to standard out or it happens through some log shipping and the actual program logic of handing that failure case operates in an entirely different universe. So not only are you generating a bunch of log messages, but the thing the thing that you get back at the top of your program has no context. It has none has no no hook to any of that any of that log context that you were sending out to to logging. So uh, that I so I, I strongly advocate if there is an error, then just return just return it to the caller. And the errors package with the wrap method gives you the ability for that little piece of log context that you're gonna you know call in log dot error just put that in the in the in the error message in in the error itself errors dot wrap with that message text and return that to the caller so you get you get all those annotations which were previously kind of sent out to the the, uh, the log file via this kind of side channel are now available at the top when you're going to when you're going to print out or analyze that error or log it into a file or you know quit the program because the error happened you have all that context there for the the operator or the developer to figure out what happened I have a question about that. So how does structural logging fit with this philosophy? Which I, I totally see the point of what you're saying. But the repeats, especially if you're not really crafting your, your, your logging message strings. But how do you handle, if you want to do structural logging, do you use that, the dump of the, the levels you know, that you accumulated into a value and that's your log? So th- th- this is probably the most opinionated thing I'm going to say, but I don't see the point in structured logging. Not, not because I, I think it's not a useful thing to rather than just have a free text blob of text, you know, th- th- this idea of key value, key value um, as logging is, is useful. But my, I think there are really two consumers of logs. There is the, the person running the program. You know, I usually say the operator because that, I come from an, I come from an ops background. And in that case, if a program tells me something, like this kind of Unix philosophy, if the program tells you something, then it was important. You should pay attention to it. Um, the number of environments I've worked in where you can't look at the log messages without grepping out a bunch of rubbish um, is, is, is a big problem. So if the only things that you log are you know, things that the, the user needs to, needs to take action on, then I don't see a lot of value in investing in a kind of framework for describing you know, keys and values for, for logs. Now, to, to be very, very clear, this is, this is my opinion. I don't want to push that onto anybody else. I know there's a lot of people who see a lot of value in structured logging. But for, for me, looking through this, this, uh, this window of like, if you're going to log a line, it's actually something that I need to take, to take, um, to take action on then arguably you should be logging very little because if there's thousands of lines of output, something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. And if there's thousands of lines of output and nothing has gone wrong, your program is just really chatty, then you've got a much more serious problem. The, the second persona is obviously the developer, and I, I, I keep them separate from the person running the program versus the person debugging the program. And the developer wants all the, all the logging and tracing on. So I think in that, in that case, your structured logging is something that you use in uh, in development, um, and m- maybe you interpret that to be always print out the file on the line and the function that it was executing in, and maybe some timestamps and things like that. Um, then yes, that is super useful. But you, you, I, I, 
I don't think the two use cases should be conflated. As the operator, I only want programs to output when there's something that I need to do. They shouldn't just tell me that they're still running. They shouldn't just tell me, um, shouldn't just tell me kind of information like, uh, you know, couldn't couldn't dial this socket, but I'm retrying. It's okay. Don't worry. Like that's that's not it's not something I need to care about. It's you shouldn't tell me that. For the developer, yes, you want to turn on all those all those logins so you can see the retry loop and you say, well, that's it. Always retries three times before it does anything. Um, but they're they they're different personas, and so for, in 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 that that kind of worldview. I, structure logging doesn't seem a, as useful to me. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, we had a conversation with uh, Scott Mansfield uh, from Netflix, too, and he was talking about how they don't really rely on logs so much as they do counters. They, they use metrics for everything, so they would count the number of reconnect errors that are occurring and measure that over time, and they could see that there's a clear problem because the number of reconnect attempts is happening at a much higher frequency than usual. And that's when they start kind of digging in. Um, I think the other case where people like structured logging is in distributed application tracing. So I can look for a tag that says, you know, uh, a request ID and I can get all the logs associated with a given request. But kind of to your point, when you get to large scales, it's really hard to manage all those logs anyway. So you, you kind of have to find different ways. But I kind of want to roll back a little bit where we talk about trying as the best you can to return upstream. One case that I see a lot of people use logging for in those cases is when you're in kind of like a select loop, right? You're pulling from a channel, something happens, you don't want to return because you're just, you're just a parallel work stream. You know, you're running kind of concurrently to the main thread. So you don't want to die out because then you stop processing all messages. And I typically see a lot of logging take place in those types of methods so that people aren't just kind of throwing away that the fact that there was an error with some given thing. Yeah, yeah. So you've got to consider the persona that you're in. Are you in the the the, the developer persona? Like, like, I want to, I want to observe the operation of this select loop. Like, it's it's one of many that's going on currently. I believe that if I can see, kind of get insight into how all these different parts and these different intermeshing parts are moving, I will be able to reconstruct the flow of events later on that's kind of like the developer persona the operator persona like if that was just dumping out information like i'm going back through the select loop again you know what one event conditions fired that would make me furious i've i've worked in i've worked in environments in in trading companies where we would produce gigabytes and gigabytes of logs per you know per application there were many many applications running at at the time and all my day was just b zipping and un b zipping these things and then grabbing out a bunch of stuff that it was was it was not useful. I, I think that the distributed the distributed um, tracing example is a really good counterpoint to um, to my my points about uh, about structured logging. That actually, yes, that 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 request that request ID is something you want to you want to thread through. But um, but is is that something that the you know needs to be printed out on the console? Like I'm handling this request, or is it just um, something that goes into the, the, in, in terms of logging, there are definitely exceptions to this case. Audit logs are a great example, and probably a perfect example of where structured logging is useful. User ID, in group ID with permissions set, did operation. Um, because you do need, um, in, in large scale systems and uh, well regulated ones, you do need audit logs. And but again, the audit log is not something that the operator sits tailing. They, you know, it's not something you're going to alert on, like an error. And it happened in the audit log. Um, there, there are different personas. 
So in the same subject, I wanted to ask your opinion because I see logging and and instrumentation instrumentation of metrics as dif- serving different purposes. For example, I can start tracking how many times a certain request came through because I usually get 500,000 a day. And if I certainly start getting 200,000, I want to be alerted. Something is going on and I want to see those metrics. What is your opinion on instrumenting your code that way with getting metrics out of it? Yeah, they are absolutely separate things. Logging is for the human. Instrumentation is for the machines, for your monitoring, for your automated alerts, for your um, your, your your hysteresis, your automatic retry, your scaling up, your scaling down. That if you're driving those processes off tailing a log file, you have a serious operational problem. They are separate and independent things. Yeah, and I think logging too should be something that you should be able to back off of. Um, you know, I've worked on systems commonly where you know it's streamed over UDP and stuff. So it's, it's one of those things like you don't want logging to slow down your application because there's some, there's some slowdown on the disk or, you know, things start catastrophically failing because you run out of disk and things like that. So, and I guess it depends on how important your logs are, right? Like if, if, if you're doing something for a bank, you probably want every single message, you know, it's probably of grave importance to keep that for, audit purposes but you know in other cases you know if you're you're logging requests to your site you know if if you lose a minute and a half of logs because there was some slowdown there it's just not the end of the world yeah there there are different different use cases like the audit the audit log the http request log if you have to keep them for analytics or fraud detection or something like that and then there's the the log of your app, actual application code that was does it tell you every time it speaks to you, does it tell you this is something you need to care about or is it just telling you things and you're like, I've seen, I see that all the time. Like, like my, my rule of thumb is if to work on an application, you have to get out grip to filter out a bunch of stuff, which is not important to you. That is the, the, the problem is that you're logging too much and that logging is of not enough value. And this is completely separate from the audit log, which has to happen for every action, the HTTP request that has to happen for analytics and fraud purposes, or the metrics, which are how you monitor the, the health of your system. It's hard because there's no cardinal rule, right? It's, it's just kind of like the other topics we've had here today. It's, it's really kind of looking at your program and determining how important these things are to you. Like, are they a, necess- a necessity? to operate and maintain this application or are they really just fluff that make you feel comfortable that you could open a log and see that data if you wanted to and the number of times i've seen applications that are heavy on the logging side and nobody ever looks at the logs is you know that's probably the better majority of applications i've worked on you know most of the time you're looking at your metrics dashboards and things like that it's just it's too hard to go grepping through logs and especially when they, you don't have a central logging place for, for these things, which you know, it, at high scale also becomes its own problem because that's another system that can fail when you're kind of doing your distributed logging out to one place. And you have to make the decisions, how, how worthwhile is that additional complexity to you and you know, the additional storage to store all these logs and things, or are yeah. you really trying to get a rough state of your application? And companies that handle that for you, they charge a lot of money. It's very expensive. Oh, yeah. 
those companies love when you you throw them just needless logs. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually some kind of like per rate charge. So that there's a strong moral hazard in there for them to not help you become better. They'll just they'll just write you a better tool to handle larger larger volumes of logs. By all means, don't change. Just keep it keep going how you're going. I think the difficulty is that when when you look at a line of code and you're thinking about if something were to go wrong here, you think about all the times that you've tried to debug an application and you didn't have enough information. So I think people err on the side of providing too much information. So just in case they need it. And I mean, I guess there's other ways around it, too, aside from from logging all the time. You know, some people will build in ways where they can signal the application to change its its verbosity for the um, logging levels. Some people do canary builds with additional logging in them. There, there's a, just a variety of ways you can attack debugging a problem. Because the, the, the other issue becomes when you have errors, is it like a systemic issue that like continues to happen and plague the rest of the system? Or is it just an anomaly, right? Like you're going to occasionally have bugs that you doesn't matter how much logging you put in there, you're probably never going to figure out why that happened. It's just, if, it's, if you can't reproduce it, it's hard to, it's always going to be hard to debug just looking at the log messages that took place. The log messages are really only there to guide you in setting back up the conditions that were taking place when that error occurred. Exactly. And when, once that's happened, it's too late. The horse has bolted. So, to, to, to come, you, you mentioned errors. To come back to errors, the why I think Go is so successful for being a language for writing server software, and that, that this is really where we're seeing it. I mean, it's it's branching out into other things as well, but its its home territory is server software. Is because of the way we do error handling. We don't have exceptions, and per, per, perhaps not everyone has 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 grasped has grasped this. But every time you type. You might think, oh, geez, if error equals nil, then return nil. I have to error return error. I have to type this all the time. That's missing the point. That's it's making you think about what happens if this operation failed, and you have to do that everywhere, all through Go code because we don't have exceptions. We don't have exceptions because you should, to write reliable programs, you have to think about the failure case first. Don't worry about the happy path. Think about. What happens when this fails? And that, I think that is what is making Go really successful for writing service software because you, you, can't, just, you can't just write the code in this linear, oh, everything's, everything's going to work and that throws clause on the, on, on the function declaration is going to take care of any problems. We, 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 we see how the languages with exceptions go for reliability. You don't know if they're going to explode at any point. And as, as kind of... As, as verbose as goes, error handling is. It makes us think about the what happens if this fails, literally at every function call, because any function call can fail. And, and, and if you don't want that function call to fail, don't return an error. Write it in such a way that it can't, it can't, it, it can't, it can't return an error by having extra preconditions, or accept the fact that any time you deal with the real world, the network, the disk, it could fail, and you should and you need to handle that failure right then and there rather than just waving your hand and saying IO exception will bubble up to someone who, can, who knows how to handle it. The best place to handle that failure is right there in that function right at the point that the error happens. 
And if people are really annoyed about checking, doing the if statement all the time to check the errors, they can use your errors package, right? I love it the way you, you made it so you can just return the error. And if it's no, it's no. And if, if not, you, the message is there and that's it. Yep. So I know when I first got into the language, the kind of verbose error handling was kind of annoying too, because I came from languages that had exceptions. And then you start to realize it does make a lot more sense there. But I think it's, it's just a, a change of viewpoint, right? So it's a half class empty versus half full, right? So we look at it and we're like, wow, this is annoying that I have to keep doing this. But it's much more exciting when we think about the fact that everybody else who's working on this project also has to do this, right? It's kind of like HOA regulations, right? Like it's kind of a pain <laughs> in the butt, right? Like it's, it's annoying because you, you don't want to have to follow the rules, but it makes everybody else follow the rules, you know? Well, I think another corollary to that is is the idea of interfaces in Go. I was thinking through this today, and I think there's a good uh, parallel between the way you, you think about interfaces in Go and the way you handle errors in Go versus other languages. You know, with, with Go interfaces, uh, you're, you're modeling behavior, and you don't have to think very hard about that uh, inheritance chain and and which abstract classes to create above them. You know, I came, I did a lot of Java and C sharp and, and Ruby and and all of that object oriented inheritance. It, it, there is a big cognitive load to that, and just using embedding and composition and Go feels so light and so much better. But it's hard for for people who come from object oriented languages to catch that feeling. So uh, again, it, it's one of those things where it takes everybody some time to adjust to uh, the new features that they're not used to before they can embrace them. I, I agree. And this, this is really the, the open question that I have, I had from my talk um, is that like the, 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 every episode of this podcast, every time you interview somebody, everyone at some point in the podcast says, Oh geez, you should see my first code. I used so many channels. I did them wrong. And, and it, it's, like everyone knows that lesson now. Like anyone who's who's become a successful Go developer is like, whoa, far too many channels. I went overboard there. But that's how can we find a like? Don't use too many channels is not actionable to a new a new Go developer. They're like, what are you talking about? This is why I learned this language. Apparently, concurrency is a really important thing. Why shouldn't I use channels? So it it, it becomes really really uh, really subjective and not particularly useful to say, oh, be careful, don't use too many channels. Where is the where is the the design language that that says when where is a channel appropriate where is it not um, those, those kind of things I think are are missing in in the general discourse of Go um, or, or if not missing not emphasized it's not things that we talk about we we we, we focus on on uh, speed or static compilation or cross compilation or other things like that which are it, 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 E equally good, but they're kind of missing the missing the wood for the trees. Like where is the where is the the kind of Eric talked about it the way that in the Ruby community there's this focus on design. People would talk about the people would talk about a language design always. That was the kind of things that that you would talk about at conferences. Um, where is that language that that discourse in Go? That's that's really the open question from my talk. I think. I'm very glad to say that I'm starting to see a major shift towards that conversation with you and Ben Johnson and Matt Ryer. Um, 
just uh, I wanted to mention Matt Raya wrote a blog post about his talk at Australia Go, uh, Golang UK about talking about check your errors first and then do the happy path, just like you're saying to do. And this is just it goes to that uh, concept of put a guard in your method, right? It's, it's a design concept. Um, going back to what you were saying about this conversation about design, when I started doing Go and was, when, I were meet, well, when I was meeting people who were uh, experts, I would ask, how did you learn? And try an error was the, would be the answer. And on and on again, people would say, try an error. And now I see that people okay, are thinking, well, let's not uh, subject people through try and error anymore. Uh, Katrina's talk at Go, uh, Con in Denver was a, had a lot to do with this concept of let's pave the path for people to jump in and not go through the hassle of trial and error. Let's, you know, have educational material. And, and now a lot of people are coming out and talking about design. I think that I sense that there is a shift and I think that's very, very positive. Yeah, Katrina's talk was, was fantastic. And the, the thing that we should all on this podcast remember is that we, we, we are the success story. We are the ones that didn't quit. We are the ones that didn't get so lost that we made a such a mistake, such a mess, and we couldn't figure out. And we just gave up. Like we, we were actually the ones that figured out how to how to how to write successful Go code. Um, and Katrina's talk is really important because, as she said, as a beginner, you don't have that. Uh, like there's a, there's a phrase, hindsight is twenty twenty. Like we we're all looking back at our experience and saying, oh, geez, it was it was hard to learn, but we 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 got through somehow. Like think. Put yourself back into the mind of the beginner, and you have n- no concept of right or wrong. You don't know when you're writing good code or bad code. You don't know when you're you're doing you're you're, you're bringing knowledge from another another language, or you're just learning, learning this from scratch. And is this good or bad? Is am I am I having a hard time writing this program because I'm fighting against the language, or because I'm actually making a mistake? Like with that, as a beginner, you have no um, no context to to judge yourself. To, to judge your your progress like that, so Katrina talks really it was really really important to remind us all of we are the success story. We're the ones who persevered and learnt uh, and, and learnt the, learnt the language either through you know, trial and error or just re- reading the right example at the right time that, that put us on a successful path. But we shouldn't consider that um, with enough time anyone can do that because a lot of people uh, a lot of people are unsuccessful and they give up halfway through. Yeah, good point. So I think we are actually about over time. So I think we're going <laughs> to skip over, um, skip over kind of talking about news and projects this episode as much as we would love to, to go forever. Can we do like a 12-hour podcast? <laughs> <laughs> With Dave, I think we can, yeah. So uh, I think we can skip into um, Free Software Friday and then we'll kind of close out the show. As always, Brian, you want to kick this thing off? I do. I spent a whole lot of time playing with rsync this week and it's, it's old school Unix tools, but uh, you, I just can't live without rsync. So big shout out to the people who keep rsync fast and awesome and safe. I love rsync. Thank you. I think that is Jeremy, Jeremy Allison. Is that his name? It's it, the, the, the same people that make Samba make rsync. Maybe I'm returning. Maybe I'm remembering it completely wrong. But there, there is a strong correlation between the two. I think. But yeah, I think 
using rsync and SSH, you can pretty much move the world. Yeah. And I think I did this week. <laughs> Do you want me to go next? I have one. Sure. Yes. So somebody gave a shout out to AG a couple of weeks ago, I think, on the, on the podcast. That was me. I have one better because it's called PT, the Platinum Searcher, and it's written uh, by a Japanese gopher. I'll put the name up. I'll put the link in, in the show notes. But yeah, PT, it's way better, way better than ACK, way better than AG. I use it every single day. I, um, I'm not a big one for editor integrations. I have a very Spartan environment. and if I, So it's for, for me, my entire day is just PT, some piece of text, find the line, go and edit it. I am so looking forward to installing that. With this endorsement, uh, I use ACK all the time. Also, not on my editor, just on the terminal. And this is something like uh, what you're saying is better. And by the description, I'm just dying to try it. Well, has has all the, the features of of ACK and AG of ignore of skipping over temporary files and .gits and things like that? But it's written in Go. <laughs> I'm trying to think of who it was, too. Somebody had just mentioned, I think it was Harold something Ringvold, maybe, in the, the GoTime FM uh, Slack, just before we got on the show, had pointed that out to me, too. Like, have you seen this? So I definitely need to in- install it. So you said it's basically feature compatible with uh, the Silver Searcher? Pretty much. Pr- pretty much. I mean, I, I don't know what the features are. Like, I just use PT. Um, it, my, my, my two requirements like PT and PT minus L. So minus L just gives you the names and you pipe them through, pipe them through Vim and edit, edit your files. Um, but yeah, written by uh, Monochrome Gan, Japanese, Japanese gopher. I saw a presentation on this 2014, I think it was, um, the first time I went to GoCon in Japan. That's awesome. Plus we can contribute when we, when we find new usage, but I, I probably have a similar workflow to you. I, I basically... AG a directory looking for what I'm looking for and then just open it in Vim. I, I don't do a whole lot of editor integrations and stuff like that. I'm just pretty comfortable with having my editor open and a shell. I just installed this and it's beautiful. Uh, you're, you're ahead of us. So how about you, Carlicia? Well, so I recently got a job doing Go full-time and I was going working on a new project and going through the phase of you know defining and designing and recently I got full, full on coding and my shout out today, we've mentioned it before, is source graph. I can't not tell you how much faster I graph things. You know, if I'm on GitHub, I don't want to download everything to my local machine and just search on my local machine. I could do that, but it's so much faster to just go. I'm on GitHub looking at a library and I'm browsing through the code and I have source graph guiding me through, you know, just popping up uh, the descriptions. And if I want to go deeper, I just click on the link and I'm there. It's been amazing. I've learned a hundred times faster just like uh, learning the what I'm looking at and also learning Go at the same time because, you know, I, of course, I see the patterns. And, and another, another shout out is just Go itself. I love that the Go code that I see on people's libraries is they look exactly the same as pretty much the same as the Go code that I'm writing. It's, uh, the, the consistency is amazing. Makes life so much better. Awesome. So mine this week is a little off, but I haven't been using a lot of new programming tools over the past couple of weeks. And I don't think everybody wants to keep hearing new stuff or old stuff. So 
So um, I'm going to shout out to ASCII Doctor, which is ASCIIDoctor.org. And uh, typically I'm a markdown person, but I haven't found a really good tool set for being able to do like table of contents and things like that for markdown. So ASCII Doctor is similar to markdown. Um, it uses ASCII doc and then it kind of uh, behind the scenes can do doc book and things. So it can generate PDFs with like linkable table of contents and you can do kind of like little sidebars and annotations and stuff. Um, it has source code highlighting and stuff in it. So it's, it's really awesome for doing documentation, especially with code and stuff involved. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I use it all the time. I actually write all my talks long form, like I actually write out everything I want to say. And I generally do before I then transpose it into, uh, into like Keynote or something like that. Um, for, for one, like I need to know how many words I've got and the Keynote won't tell you that. So like I tend to write up the whole thing long form and I've taken to writing in ASCII Doctor so that I can then turn it into HTML and send a link to people. Um, and that, for, for me, that's so much better than using a, a Google Doc because to use a Google Doc, you've got to be online. Whereas this is just a text file. You can edit it wherever you are. Nice. And we can just use Vim. <laughs> nice little guard file updates the PDF alongside of it. And then I get to give a second shout, shout out to Afrin for preventing me from sniffling this whole show. <laughs> is that open source? <laughs> no, it's not open source. And you probably have to show ID at the counter of the pharmacy to get it these days. Really? Uh, wow. The ingredients are listed on the back. I mean, that's somewhat open source, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess... But I guess the algorithm to combine them it does not exist. Yeah, that close. reminded me of Katrina Stark again. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, have ingredients, but you don't know how to put it together. <laughs> the correct mixture ratio. Yeah. So, all right. So as much as I would love to continue on, especially having Dave on the show, we've had a lot of interesting conversations and I think way more that could be had. Uh, I think we are like way over time. So this will be a nice long episode. So I definitely want to thank everybody who's on the show uh, today, everybody who's listening, everybody who will be listening to the show when we drop it live. Um, big shout out to our sponsor, Backtrace. And if you aren't subscribed already, you can subscribe at gotime.fm. Uh, we should have an upcoming uh, newsletter. Uh, we are gotime.fm on Twitter and gotime.fm slash ping on GitHub if you want to submit yourself or suggestions for guests for the show or questions. And I think that's it. With that said, everybody, goodbye. Hey, thanks for getting up so early, Dave. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, David. 